Hello, everyone, and welcome to Conversations with Mark Becker, a podcast produced by Georgia State University. You will find this pod episode wherever you listen to podcasts. In this and future weekly podcasts, I sit down with researchers and experts who can give us valuable and important information about the coronavirus pandemic. I hope you will find these conversations stimulating and thought-provoking. And if you do, please subscribe so that you will not miss future episodes. Again, I'm your host, Georgia State President Mark Becker. Today, my guest is Harry Hyman, a medical doctor and clinical associate professor in Georgia State School of Public Health. He's a widely quoted expert on the coronavirus pandemic in Georgia and the policies and tactics needed to mitigate its spread. Welcome, Harry. Thank you very much. Harry, it's, it's great to have you on, and I know you've been extraordinarily busy um, during this pandemic uh, as an expert, uh, consulted, and certainly uh, uh, heavily uh, researched by the media. And I thought we would start off with one of the topics that's been in the news a lot recently, particularly because of the strategy that Sweden has taken to the pandemic, and that's this concept of herd immunity. And so for our listeners, could you explain what herd immunity is and why it's so important as we think about this pandemic and what we're likely to experience over the next however many months? Well, you know, I think the challenge of a, of a, of a new virus, and this is called a, a novel coronavirus because it's new, uh, humans haven't seen it before, um, is, is that we don't have any um, inherent protection to it or, or immunity to it. Um, and you can get immunity one of two ways. You can get it uh, by virtue of having had the infection. Uh, and again, one of the questions or challenges uh, with this coronavirus is whether or not having had it and having by blood test the antibody showing immunity actually provides protection. Uh, and then if it provides protection for how long? Um, and the other way is through a vaccine. Um, and uh, as people have probably heard, there are experts uh, all over the world, um, working very hard to develop a vaccine. Um, whether they're successful and in what timeline, we're not sure. Um, people, people have projected uh, 12 to 18 months, uh, but, but again, it's, it's, it's an unknown. But until we have enough people um, in a population who are protected, either naturally by having had it or by virtue of vaccine, um, th there's a risk to being out in public. Yeah, absolutely. And so let, let's just talk about vaccines a little bit more. As you've alluded to, you know, th there's a lot of talk as if there's a vaccine and it takes 12 to 18 months as if this is a, it's just, this is how you do it. There's a process and you get a vaccine. You know, the, the reality is, you know, we know that if you get a measles vaccine, it works for life. Uh, we know with influenza, uh, you're supposed to get one every year, and sometimes it doesn't even work. And then tragically, with uh, some viruses, like the virus that create, causes HIV-AIDS, you know, we're more than 35 years on, and we still don't have a vaccine. So what is, what, what is it that um, makes developing a vaccine so difficult for a virus? Um, so, so just, again, to clarify with people listening, uh, from a, a medical perspective, there, there are two main kinds of infections. There's more, but two main kinds. There's bacterial infections that are primarily treated with antibiotics, and then there are viral infections. Uh, and unlike with bacterial infections, um, we have very few treatments for viral infections that are curative, that actually 
um, get rid of the virus. So even though we're very successful in treating HIV right now, that the treatments are really to hold the infection at bay and allow people uh, who are under treatment um, to live, live normal lives. Um, to your point, um, some vaccines last a lifetime. Um, some require regular boosters. Uh, even measles, by the way, um, requires a booster. Um, and then others, uh, because the virus itself can uh, change or mutate from year to year, um, require annual immunizations. And that's, and that's the case um, with the flu vaccine. And then with all of those, they're not 100% perfect. They're not 100% protective. Um, so on, on a good year, a flu vaccine might protect 80 or 90% of the population. In a bad year, it might be less than 50%. Um, so there's a lot of uncertainty, both in the development and in their ability to protect populations. Right. And as if you alluded to, even with HIV AIDS, not curative. And we had the recent news yesterday that there appears to be some promise with a drug that was developed for Ebola, Remdesivir. But at least the reports I saw suggested it may not lead to better outcomes. It may just lead to shorter times of being sick. And so that's, again, another example that viruses uh, are a lot more challenging than, say, bacteria, I guess. Is what Absolutely. Yeah. Okay. So, so as we live through this period, and certainly here in Georgia, um, you know, we've heard of the opening up. Uh, in, um, you know, different states are doing it differently. We don't yet have a national policy that anybody's following. Uh, but there's also other countries. And, you know, one of the countries that I, I'm getting asked about a lot is, well, you know, why did we shut down? Sweden didn't shut down. And so, or, you know, why did we shut down? South Korea didn't shut down. So could you give people some idea of the different approaches? Because there is not a one-size-fits-all approach to how you battle a pandemic. And some have to do with um, the, the specifics of your country, let's say. Well, I, I think something that's really important for people to recognize is that the reason that, that we have um, shut down uh, most of the U.S. economy um, and have moved to uh, a strategy of social distancing, uh, a, what, we, what we call a, a mitigation strategy, a strategy of, of reducing impact, is candidly because we were, we were caught unprepared. Um, were we prepared, had, had, had the U.S. Um, a, uh, been um, resourcing and working the pandemic plans we've had on the books for years, um, had we rapidly ramped up testing, had we been investing in our public health infrastructure, um, we might not be in a situation we're in today. We, we might have been able to do active contact tracing um, and case identification from the beginning, um, been able to uh, use more of a containment strategy, which is what we've done historically, uh, and not had to move where we are uh, today with, with really um, shutting down the economy, having people shelter in place, and relying on um, social distancing. Um, I think moving from here to what's next really requires our having a plan, the resources and infrastructure in place to move back to where we should have been in the first place, which is really more of a containment strategy. Um, there's been a lot of discussion in the media about testing. Um, testing is critically important, um, both to um, identify new cases, um, and, and then, and then as, a, as a tool for contact tracing, but also to do um, community-level surveillance to understand the level of the, of the, the virus and the disease in, in the community and, and have some sense of the number of people who are 
asymptomatic or without symptoms, uh, but still potentially um, contagious. So, and that ties back to herd immunity. We, we, we need that surveillance to have some right. sense of, are we getting to where we need to get to where, in a sense that the situation is not nearly as concerning. But let, let's talk about those tests a little bit because there, you know, as you mentioned, there's two kinds of tests. One is, are you infected? The other is, uh, have you, do you have antibodies to the virus? Meaning may, might you have already been infected? Right. Uh, you know, based on what you're seeing and hearing right now, um, where are we in testing and, and how good are the tests we have? Um, let's see, the short answer to those questions are not where we need to be and not good enough, uh, but, but, but the answer, but, but, yeah, but, to, but the answer in complete sentences, um, you know, we're, we're, we're still ramping up our, our testing capacity. Uh, and I think nationally and in Georgia, we're, we're in a better place than we were, but not nearly where we need to be. And, and by that, I mean, um, in order to move from where we are now to more of a containment strategy, we need to have testing accessible for all people in every community around the state. Um, so we've, we've been able to build out, I think, 49 drive-in testing centers around Georgia, um, and that's great, but, but it means that the barrier to exit is you have to have a car. Um, so if you're in a low-income urban community or a, a rural community and you don't have a car, well, now you don't have access to testing. Um, on, on, on top of that, um, you, you have to have the ability to deploy those tests. Um, if you have a new case identified, you have to be able to test um, any contact of that person, uh, including asymptomatic people. Um, to date, we really haven't been doing a lot of um, testing on asymptomatic. Um, one of the things you read about in the media is um, something called false negatives, right? People who have coronavirus symptoms, get tested, their test is negative, um, but they're convinced they have it, and sometimes on repeat testing, they do. Um, there are very few um, tests that we have, um, particularly a, a rapid test like that, um, th that is 100% um, sensitive in its ability to detect um, all, um, all people with a disease, and there can be challenges at every phase of the testing. So from, from specimen collection, if you don't put the the swab far enough uh, into the nose um, to to the way it's carried to the lab to the way it's it's processed in the lab. So so that's a concern, uh, but but one that's you know one that's fixable. The, the other kind of testing that you were asking about um, is is more uh, serological testing or blood testing for immunity. Um, and, and that's critically important, again, for us to understand the impact of the disease, of the disease um, across the population and to have a sense of um, how many people have it without knowing, how many people were asymptomatic. You know, the estimates are that about 25% of people with coronavirus uh, are asymptomatic, but they can still spread the disease. It's critically, critically important that we understand that. I would say, and this is halfway jokingly, is most of us believe we're one of the, we, we hope we're one of those 25% we've already had it um, and that we've got yeah. the antibodies and we just don't know it. But, uh, well, you know, in, in your uh, in your explanation, your answer, you know, you talked about uh, access to transportation in rural areas or, or in urban areas. And um, certainly we've seen uh, hot spots of this virus in Albany, Georgia. Uh, early, some of the early clusters were in Rome in Cartersville. Uh, certainly we've had a lot of cases here in uh, North in Fulton County recently. 
Uh, and one of the things that's become very clear, and the CDC has reported on this, is uh, not every community is being impacted equally. And it's whether it's uh, job displacement, you know, being laid off, uh, or whether it's getting the disease and dying, we're seeing disparities, quite stark disparities. And yeah. uh, many of those are based on socioeconomic status, race, or ethnicity. Uh, could you comment on, you know, what we're seeing and, and what's at the heart of it, um, in your opinion? Well, I, I, unfortunately, what, what, what we're seeing is really a, a perpetuation of what we have been seeing prior to COVID-19, and, and that is that there are profound disparities, uh, profound health disparities um, that are tied to social, economic, and environmental disadvantage. Um, and those disparities uh, affect racial and ethnic minority groups, affect low-income groups, uh, and others. Um, and, and we're seeing those groups being disproportionately punished um, by, by this pandemic, uh, in particular, the African-American community, um, based on both national data and Georgia state data, is, is, is carrying a, um, a, a very disproportionate uh, burden of this. Uh, based on Georgia data, um, a majority of deaths in Georgia uh, have been among African-Americans, even though they're only about 30% of the state population. Um, even more worrisome in Georgia, when you look at uh, deaths among healthcare workers, um, a disproportionate uh, impact on women uh, and on uh, both African-Americans of, of, of both genders and African-American women. Um, and I think it's, 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 a, it's it's how that social and economic disadvantage translates to where people live, the kinds of jobs they do, the kinds of diseases they're more susceptible to. So again, it's not by chance that we have more chronic disease uh, in, in, in the African-American community in our country. Uh, it's because of, of many of those um, longstanding policies that have placed them um, at a disadvantage, whether it is related to economic opportunities um, educational opportunities, um, those kinds of things. Um, so their health status puts them at greater risk for both contracting uh, and having a more serious um, case of COVID. And, and then if you look at the communities they live in and reliance um, more so on public transportation, um, low-income workers are, are um, more likely to be in jobs that have been considered essential, requiring you not to work from home um, behind a safe computer, um, but, but on the job um, to take uh, public transportation. Um, even in Georgia, if you look at the kinds of businesses that have been reopened over the past week, and you think about barbershops and fitness centers and restaurants uh, and who the low-income workers are that are in those, in those positions, um, there's a, a disproportionate burden on people who are low-income and racial and ethnic minority. And you and I both know viruses aren't racist. I mean, they don't seek out um, individuals, but they do exploit um, differences that are, are there. And, you know, it's on a conversation I was in earlier today, um, the in individual I was talking to said that, you know, based on what they're reading and seeing, it appears that uh, this virus uh, is uh, most damaging to people who have chronic inflammation. And a lot of, would you, would, do you think that's accurate? And if it is, are a lot of these conditions, which, you know, have been cited as the comorbidities that lead to worse outcomes, things like heart disease, diabetes, um, ties to obesity, are the, is 
Chronic inflammation a, a part of that, as, as far as you know? I think I think chronic inflammation may be a part of that. Um, we know that we know that stress, uh, including the stress of systemic racism, um, has profound negative impacts on the on on the body and on physiology. Um, but but I think if we if if we look only at kind of medical biological explanations without um, both recognizing and shine, shining a light on the social and economic disadvantage, I, I, I think we're missing a critical part of the story. Um, okay, so and, and, please go ahead, I'm sorry. Yeah, no, no, and I think, and I think you know, the, the, the narrative that is being told nationally um, um, is, is focused on um, increased risk related to um, higher prevalence of chronic disease. And, and while that's true, um, it, it fails to recognize the root causes. And I think it's critical that we recognize the root causes because the same communities are not only disproportionately impacted by COVID-19 and its health effects, they're also disproportionately impacted by the economic and social impacts of this. So if, if I give you a magic wand and you get to develop the plan for quote unquote reopening society, how do you, what are the sorts of things that can be steps that can be taken to mitigate these risks to disadvantaged populations, uh, both in terms of the practices or policies and priorities of opening up and re reopening parts of society, but also uh, the communication strategies for those at risk and, uh, you know, both uh, to, to, to help them. And, you know, so how can the government help and how can they help themselves, I guess, is, is yeah. a simplistic way of asking the question. Yeah. Well, I think there are some some easy policy steps we can take to support the social safety net. Um, I, I think that um, the governor could and should um, place a, a moratorium on evictions and foreclosures. Um, I think the whole, you know, if if sheltering in, in place is how you stay safe, um, you can't do that if you have housing insecurity and instability. So I think that's one important step forward. I think that um, food insecurity is also a critical problem. Um, I think historically, um, states like Georgia have um, created barriers around work or training or other requirements people had to, had to do to be eligible for food assistance. I think there should also be a moratorium on those. Um, I, I think that we have significant barriers to access to healthcare. Um, we didn't expand Medicaid. Um, the majority of the 250,000 people in Georgia who are falling in the coverage gap are, are, are people who are low-income workers, um, but ironically don't make enough to be eligible for subsidies in private uh, markets. Um, and I think as we open up our state, we need to think about who are the workers that were opening up um, those businesses, working in those businesses, um, and if they are already um, already disadvantaged and at higher risk, what, what are we going to put in place to ensure that um, they're protected? Um, one of the things that really struck me in the, in the governor's executive order um, 10 days ago when he announced he was going to be opening up some businesses was um, basically a line that said that providing uh, personal protective equipment uh, would be provided as available and appropriate. You know, I, I, I think we need to ensure as we're opening things up that we are putting the health and the safety 
of our citizens, both as workers and as customers, um, front, front and center. Well, Harry, this is terrific. It's, I think it's very helpful to our listeners. And I know that um, you know, you're, you're going to be staying on the front line, staying engaged in these issues, and I expect for years to come. So really appreciate you being with me today and look forward to having the opportunity to touch base with you perhaps again as we get further on, because I don't think given that we're nowhere near herd immunity, uh, there's no reason to believe we're out of the woods with this anytime soon. So thank, thank you. Thank you so much. I appreciate the opportunity. Thank you. Well, this has been Conversations with Mark Becker, a podcast produced by Georgia State University. And you've been listening to a conversation with Professor Harry Hyman, medical doctor and clinical associate professor in the School of Public Health. To hear future conversations with experts on the front lines addressing the coronavirus pandemic, you'll find conversations with Mark Becker wherever you listen to podcasts. Thank you for listening, and remember to subscribe so that you will not miss future episodes. Goodbye for now.